You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, we've been in the book of James, and James has been talking about trials, difficult circumstances in life. And he said it in verse 2, when you face trials. Not if you face them, but when. He's saying everybody is going to go through difficult moments in life, challenges even to our very faith. And so he said, but you can rejoice in the midst of those trials to the degree that you understand that all of our problems have potential in them to make us better people, to build into us perseverance and to give us perspective that God uses trials to make us better people if you'll allow him. And so that was last time talking about how trials are used by God, but they're coming for us. And now today he's gonna warn us about a reality within the trials that we must anticipate and respond to accordingly. And you saw it in verse 13, he says, when you are tempted, that when we face a difficult moment, a trial, thoughts will be solicited to our mind that will present to us options, ways of responding. That if we were in neutral territory, taking a quiz on morality, we would say, that's an inappropriate course of action, not best, not good. And yet in the midst of that trial, we might say, you know what? That feels justified. That feels appropriate. That feels good. And so we need to understand that every trial will bring with it a temptation. So for example, let's say uh, you're at the MTV Music Awards and you believe Beyonce should win the award for best music video. And then you have to sit there as they give that award to Taylor Swift. Now that is a trial, difficult circumstance in life. And in the middle of that, a thought may be solicited to your mind. You should walk up on the stage, grab the mic from that teenage girl and chastise this crowd for their poor decision-making. And in that moment, that decision will feel appropriate, even good. Or let's say that you're a pro athlete. You're a cyclist racing in the Tour de France, and you want to win, but you're getting older. That's a trial. And in that moment, the thought may be solicited to your mind, I should take performance-enhancing drugs. Now, if someone asked you on a quiz, is that right? You'd say no, but in that moment, it suddenly feels justified, appropriate, even right. Or let's say that you got a high-powered job. You're working in Congress, you're in the business world, high-powered job brings a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and in the middle of that, you're looking for a release valve from all that pressure and all that stress. In the midst of that trial, the thought may be solicited to your mind, well, you should find relief in the arms of that 20-year-old girl in your office who's not your wife. And in that moment, even though you know that's wrong, in the middle of that trial, that temptation will feel so right. So these are all hypothetical situations. I don't know, we just kind of made up, but uh, let's talk about your own life. Let's say that you have a coworker who's really getting on your nerves. I mean, they're annoying to you. In the middle of that trial, thoughts will be solicited to your mind, options of how to respond. And some of you might feel gravitation towards the aggressive response. I want to punch them. I want to cuss them out. Others of you, you maybe go, I would never do that. You opt more for the passive aggressive option where, you know, you just roll your eyes whenever they talk or you say, didn't I hear Hitler say that once in one of his speeches? Whenever they talk, things like that. 
Or maybe you just go full passive where you're really nice to them to their face and then as soon as they leave the room, you just throw them under the bus uh, to everyone else in the room and really subvert their ability to have quality relationships. I don't know. That's an option for some of you. Or maybe school is stressful for you. Finances are stressful for you. Home pressures are difficult. In the middle of all that pressure, maybe the thought solicited to your mind to find solace in a bottle. Whether a Beverage or pills. Say, I know this doesn't solve my problems, but they make them go away, and I'll do that. Or maybe the ache of loneliness is too much. It's too much. And so you go, you know what? I can't find the love of my life, but maybe I'll just use your body tonight, whether in person or through a screen. Here's the reality. Everyone's going to face trials, every single one of us. Nobody gets away from that. And every single one of us, when we face trials, we will face temptations. Thoughts that in a neutral ground, we'd say this isn't the best way to act. But in that moment, even though we know that path is destructive, it suddenly seems desirable. We have to know that's coming for us. Difficult circumstances can drive us to make destructive decisions. And we need to know that. We need to be aware it's coming. And we don't just need to be aware it's coming. We have to ask the question, where is this coming from? How does it work on us? And then how do we respond? If we know this is coming, if we know every trial carries a temptation, where is this coming from? How does it work on us? And then how do we respond? Now, let me say this. In none of this am I trying to guilt trip any of you. We all succumb to this challenge. And so I don't want to heap shame on anybody. If anything, I want to almost in an unemotional way just kind of evaluate what's happening here, not to beat us up, but to give us a path to victory so we can win. General Patton, World War II. A lot of people were nervous as he faced off against the German general Rommel because Rommel had literally written the book on tank warfare. And yet as Patton went out against this more uh, distinguished general, he completely routed his army. And I remember when they did the movie, as you see the Nazi forces decimated, Patton standing on a mountainside in triumph. In that moment of glory, he raised a hand and says, Rommel, I read your book. <laughs> and that's what I want to do. If we know temptation's coming for us, let's read its book. Let's see how it works on us so we can work a different way. You understand it? So let's see where it's coming from. And the first thing James says is, not God. Verse 13, he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why not say that, James? He says, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's inconsistent with God's nature, so he won't do it to you. Sin is an impulse to take a conscious step away from the will of God. God is not interested with stepping away from the will of God. That's not an impulse that tempts him, and so it's not an impulse with which he will tempt you. So be careful, because I'll hear some people say sometimes, well, you know what, I don't know why God gave me this desire if he doesn't want me to act on it. You be careful. Don't suddenly slap the deity on every one of your desires. All that we feel isn't necessarily good, and we need to be able to evaluate that. So if it doesn't come from God, where does it come from? Well, let me ask this first. God won't tempt you, but will God test you? Will he put you in difficult circumstances? The answer is yes. He does it all the time. 
You saw it in Deuteronomy with his people in the Old Testament. It says, the Lord led you into that wilderness for 40 years to test you. He said, I put you in a difficult, pressure-filled society or environment to see what was in your heart. He told them in Judges, God said, I will not drive out these foreign nations from among you in order to test you. He told his people, I'm gonna give you really annoying neighbors. And I'm gonna do it to test you, to see what comes out of your heart. He told Hezekiah, hey, I'm gonna send envoys from Babylon and I'm gonna back off and let you make your own decisions. Will you interact with them with integrity or out of insecurity? Will you try to show off that you're big time and thereby subvert your entire nation? I'm just gonna let you roll, Hezekiah, to test you, to see what's in your heart. Will God test you? He will put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in your front yard. But what he won't do is come around next to you and say, hey, man, you should eat some of that fruit. Yeah, I know I said it was evil, but it looks so good, right? He's not going to do that. That's not how he works. God puts you in difficult circumstances like a good parent or a good coach. He puts you in difficulty to develop you, not to destroy you. God will put us in tests to build our faith, not destroy our faith. He's a good dad or a good coach in that sense. And yet, when that trial comes, the temptation will come with it. So where does it come from? Not God. And then James won't even blame the devil either. He says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Where does that temptation come from? James will say, it comes from you. Philo said it this way. He said, for all the wars of Greeks and barbarians between themselves or against each other are sprung from this one source, desire or lust, same word, the desire for money or glory or pleasure. These it is that brings disaster to the human race. Now, does James believe in the devil? Yes, he will name drop the devil later in this letter. And yet in this moment, he doesn't want to point out to you an external tempter. He wants to point out to you an internal traitor that inside each one of us is a little voice that loves that which is destructive to us. We all got a little traitor in us, a little deposed dictator. You don't have to obey him, but he's making crazy demands, and you got to know he's in there, and you got to know how to respond to him. So he wants to let you know temptation is not an attack from without. It arises from within. That's where it comes from. Taylor Swift winning that award does not necessitate you get on stage. That decision came from inside of you. Your girlfriend breaking up with you does not necessitate that you get hammered drunk that night. That was your choice, right? That trial is coming for you, ready or not, but that temptation rises right out of you. It's not an attack from without, but it arises from within. Our own dysfunctional thoughts bolstered by broken emotion. Now, how does it work? Well, he says, but each one is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured is about the mind's attention, and enticed is stirring the heart's affections. And then when you enact the will, you sin. Take a conscious step away from the expressed will of God. But that luring of the mind's attention and stirring of the heart's affection, that's what James calls temptation. How does it work? He even uses the word lure. It's like fishing. We call it a lure. We've talked about this. What do you do when you put a lure in front of a fish? Maybe you pick one that looks like a frog. What do you do? You want to swim it past them. 
Maybe you do it at an angle so it looks wounded and delicious. What's your goal? You want to get that fish's attention. Hey there, little buddy. But you don't just want to get his attention. You want to stir his affections like, look at you. Okay, right? But what's the end goal? You want it to enact the will. And when it does it, it never sees the hook. You see it? I get your mind's attention. I stir your heart's affections. And then when you take that step, I got you. But he says each one is lured and enticed by his own desire. This whole process is tailor-made for you. So some might go, a frog? Really? Gross. Like you're into that? That turns you on? That's disgusting. Like I don't know how you can call yourself a real fish if you're into that, because ew, okay? And it says, okay, it's no problem. We've got a different lure for you. We'll just put something else out there. And you go, ooh, shiny, right? And off you go. Each one is tempted by his own desire. Nobody in here is perfect. Everybody's got those little broken thoughts inside of us. There's something wrong with all of you. And me too. And we need to know that. And some of the best self-knowledge we can have is how does it get to us? because it's gonna work in us differently. We all struggle, but in a variety of ways. But the humility can come and go, we all struggle here, right? And we're all looking at this, but the best knowledge you can have is how does it get at me? What's the thing that gets at me? What's the thing that I know is destructive, but again and again, I come back to it. When I'm lonely, when I'm tired, when I feel entitled, when I'm hungry, when I'm sad, what's the broken well I go to drink from, even though I know I'll be thirsty the next morning? What is it? Because you need to know what you think about is what you'll care about. And what you care about, you will chase. So what do you entertain in your mind? Because what you ponder in your mind will be what you love. And what you love, you will pursue. And that will determine what you become. So I want you to think about what you think about. Let me say that again. I want you to think about what you think about. Many of us just wake up and go through our day and thoughts just come and we just accept them and operate out of them and we don't analyze. Is that true? Is that right? Is that good? Where is it leading me? Do I accept or do I reject this way of thinking, this way of seeing myself, God, others, and the, my course of action? I want you to think about what you think about. And then like I saw on a t-shirt in Denver, I remember it said, don't believe everything that you think. And I think that's good. Not just because I saw it on a t-shirt. I usually don't take the advice of t-shirts. Nor do I buy a lot of shirts with words on them. I prefer solids. <laughs> but that's true. That we don't need to believe everything that we think. Not every thought's valid, but we need to take them and test them. Paul told Timothy that. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. He said, watch what you believe, Timothy. And then watch yourself. He said, persevere in this, because in doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. For your sake, Timothy, and for everyone who looks to you for guidance, watch your life. Know what you believe. Know what you're tempted by. And Timothy, be wise in what you get led away by, because what you think about will determine what you care about, and what you care about will determine what you chase, what you entertain in your mind. And so all of us will struggle. Every single one of us will battle this. So then the question becomes, well, then what do I do? 
And James will give us some things to do. If I know this pull is coming, this addiction, this repeated pattern that is keeping me stuck in life and keeping me in arrested development and not moving forward, if I keep repeating this pattern, how do I get off this ride? How do I get out of that stream? How do I quit flowing to that destination? What he'll say is, the first thing is look downstream and see the conclusion. He says, the trick with temptation is it wants to get close to your face so that you believe it's the only option. There's no other way to respond. The only way to respond to this pain is to drink that, sleep with them, do this, believe that, go to that, feel sorry for myself. I'm gonna keep going back to the same pattern. Temptation wants to keep putting itself in your face. I'm the only option. And you have to develop the discipline to push it down and look past and say, if I engage in this, where will it lead me? If I jump in this boat, where will this stream go? And is that a place I want to be? And Alcoholics Anonymous, they say, you need to think through the drink that a hard day, a loneliness, an emotional ache will lead you to go, you know what? I can find solace in this drink. And they say, okay, everyone experiences that temptation that's in AA, but think about it. If you start drinking that, where will you go next? Where will you go next? Where will it lead? Think about your dad or your mom or your family members who followed that same path. Think about your friends that have done it. Think about your past life. Is that where you want to be? If you don't want to be there, then don't start going here and step out of this temptation. But you got to look downstream and see where is this path going and is that a place I want to be? Now it's interesting, James by saying that really doesn't use path uh, imagery. And frankly, he doesn't use fishing imagery either. Uh, He actually uses sexual imagery when he's displaying all this. Uh, Because in Greek, the language he wrote this in, there are masculine and feminine words. Uh, like Spanish. You know, in Spanish, la mesa is table and it's in feminine. In this passage, the word desire is feminine. Now, that doesn't mean that all bad desires come from women or something. Don't go there with this. I'm just saying, go with the imagery here. What he says is, you will be lured and enticed by your own desire, right? And he gives you this picture like you see in the wisdom literature, like Proverbs 7, the adulterous woman. She'll wear alluring clothes. She'll speak in provocative statements. My husband's gone on a long journey. You won't get caught. My bed is amazing. I smell good. Let's do this. And Proverbs 7 says, you don't even know you're an ox to the slaughter. You need to look and say, where is this leading me? And he says, desire. She will lure and she will entice. But then what he says, and desire when she's conceived gives birth to sin. See, every single one of us is going to hear the voice of temptation. You can't help it. But you can decide, do I want to jump in bed with that desire? And because if me and desire unite, if I bring my will in unity with that desire, she gets pregnant and she has a baby called sin. And some of us hear that and you go, yeah, Ben, but, but I don't care if I sin. It doesn't matter to me. Well, here's what's interesting. Sin is a feminine word too. And sin has a baby. Do you read it? He says, when desire is conceived, she gives birth to sin. And sin, when she's fully grown, brings forth death. He says, that's where this is going. And then he does something so weird there. He uses pregnancy imagery of bringing forth, but then he says, bring forth death. It's a startling image. Because there's never for many people, a a more enjoyable moment than the moment of the birth of their child. Why? Because it's, it's the arrival of life. 
I mean, I remember for me in my 20s, my buddies would make fun of everybody relentlessly, constantly. It's the only way you knew how to interact is uh, mockery and sarcasm. And yet, there was a special dispensation around the birth of a baby. You would watch your friend cry and make a silly noises and snot coming out of their nose when they're holding this little baby because, you know, you're like, don't make fun of him. This is magic. He knit together with the person he loves, and the two of them created a living thing. That is so amazing. And they'd hold up that baby. And even if the baby was ugly, you'd be like, oh, look at that baby, you know, because not all babies are cute. You know what I mean? Like, they turn out fine, but some of them, you know, I remember my brother, they handed him to my mom. He's like, well, he's husky. He turned out fine, but, uh, you know, sometimes you got to invest in hats, uh, something to distract the eye. But they hold up their little baby, and even if their baby's like, oh, is the head going to stay that shape? You don't worry about it, because you go, this is the most exciting day of your life. You knit together with someone else, and you brought forth life, a living person. And James takes that imagery of that room, of that day, and he says, when you unite, you bring forth death. The opposite of life. You bring something horrible into the world. Why does he do that? He does it to shock you. He does it to startle you. He does it to break the spell. Because temptation is luring in the moment of trial. But she looks way less sexy in the cold light of day. And he says, you need to see this moment clearly. Look downstream and say, it looks good here, but where will it lead me? And is that where I want to be? We look downstream to the conclusion. I think one of the most, you know, I was kind of making, uh, you know, poking fun at Kanye uh, earlier with the Taylor Swift thing. But one of the things I loved when he apologized to her, he said on TV, he said, when I made that decision, I brought forth pain into the world. And I don't want to do that. And I just thought, what a mature way to respond. He said, my decision to unite with desire brought forth pain. And I don't want to be the kind of person who does that. And so it's important to be able to do that. Look downstream and say, what does this action produce? What does it create? I have a friend, and I've mentioned him before. He is a pastor, and in his prayer closet, all along the wall when he exits are newspaper clippings of men who through infidelity to their wives, pastors, have lost their marriages and lost their ministries. It's the most depressing collage ever. And you go, why does he do that? That seems grim. Well, he does it Because he knows when he rises up out of his prayer closet and goes out to minister to people, he'll often meet people who are really hurting emotionally. And he'll come to them in an emotionally vulnerable place. And as he provides love and care and concern and truth, there's the potential to create a bond there that if you're not careful, can turn sinister and begin to violate your marriage vows. And he says, I know that happens. I've seen it happen to others. I don't want to do that because I love my wife. I love my kids. And I don't want to damage a vulnerable person. I don't want to be any near that situation, but I've seen it happen enough out there. I need to be wise that that can happen in life. And so he has these pictures up. And I remember one of them, there's a picture of a guy as the paparazzi surrounding his car. And he's still lying about what he had done. My buddy had circled the guy's wife's face and written next to it, look at her eyes. Look at her eyes. Because she had a dead look in her face and She can't fake it anymore. And my buddy looks at that because sin 
looks a lot less sexy in the cold light of day. And if that man had seen that picture back here, he might have made a different choice. And so James says, before you take a particularly conspicuously evil act, look downstream and see where it leads and say, is that where I want to be? Do you see it? But he doesn't end there. He says, now, after you've looked down, now you need to look upstream. You look downstream to see the conclusion, then you look upstream to see the source. Because for many of us, we know what our temptations are, and we know it's not good. I know I don't want to keep making this decision. I know I don't want to go back to this relationship. I know I don't want to keep interacting with a screen that way. I know I don't want to keep interacting with pills and substances this way. I know I don't want to keep making these decisions. But for some reason, the right experiences of chaos in my life make that alluring, and I stay on the cycle. Why do I do that? What's the emotional energy that keeps driving me in this direction? And you got to go upstream and say, what's providing the power to these rapids. How is this working? And James will say, it's a deception issue. In verse 14, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He says, the end of temptation is destruction. The beginning is deception. He says, something's breaking in our thought processes that's leading us to think something destructive is life enhancing. What's breaking in our thought processes? And then he does something really interesting. He doesn't point downstream. He doesn't say the problem is you think this really unhealthy food's actually nutritious. You need to read a book. He doesn't say that. The problem is you think that dating six people at once is a good strategy when actually it's not. He doesn't point downstream. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from your father of lights in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. He says, the lie that launches a million sins is that God is not a good dad who cares about you. He says the problem with a lot of our activity begins in our theology. I don't think God's going to take care of me. And I, if I don't think God's going to take care of me, then I better take care of me. And we have wandered down many broken roads looking for satisfaction that only he can give. And you go, but where does James get this idea? Deception leading to destruction. Where does it even come from? We got it from Genesis 3. That's what happened with Eve, right? What happened with Eve when, when the devil came to tempt her? Notice, he didn't start with the activity. He didn't come up and say, you know what I've been thinking about lately, Eve? Fruit. You know what I was thinking about fruit? How delicious it is. And so I cut some up. Why don't you jump in here? Adam, get over here. Try this. I paired it with some cheese. He doesn't do that. What does he do? Did God really say? He says, let's talk theology. Let's go to church. Let's talk about God. Did God really say he can't eat from every tree in the garden? And he does something interesting there. Twelve times before that, God is called the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. That word Lord is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. That means the covenantal God, the God who is close to you as your own breath and wants to bind himself to you in love. He drops that covenantal name. Why? Because it's much easier to transgress a distant deity than to hurt a loving God. So he distances her relationally from God just a little bit. And then he starts to question God's character. Hey, Eve, this is an observation. Looks like you don't get to do everything you want. Looks like your allegiance to God is costing you, Eve. 
I'm just looking around here and noticing that because of your allegiance to him, you can't do certain things. There's something in your life that would be life-enhancing, Eve, but he's not letting you do it. There's something that could add value to your life that your God's keeping from you, Eve. It seems to me that your religious adherence is keeping you from really enjoying life. Seems to me, Eve, that if you really want to experience life, you need to walk away from the author of life. Why? Because he's not good. He doesn't care about you. His rules are going to cheat you, rob you from key experiences. And so if you really want to have a full life, you got to get out of there, Eve. And that lie has been tricking us ever since. Man, if I trust God and the way he talks about sexuality, he's going to cheat me. He's going to keep me from experiences I want. I'm never going to experience what the world is. I'm going to miss out. I'm going to miss out on being able to experience all that I want to experience sexually. So the only way to really live sexually is to walk away from him. Hey, financially, I don't want to trust his way. If I trust him, he's going to rob from me. He's going to keep me back from my dreams. He's going to hold me back from what I want to accomplish. He's going to leave me poor and destitute and out in the streets in the name of Jesus. And I'm not going to do that. So I got to go for mine. That's not how it works here in D.C. Hey, you know what? If I follow him, I'm not going to be able to use my gifts. I'll never actualize my purpose. I'll never be all that I'm meant to be. And so in order to really live my life, thank you, God. I'm going to put you over here. I'll pray every now and again when I need you, but I'm going for mine. And in pursuit of life, we walk away from the author of life. Why? Because we believe the lie. He's not a good dad. He doesn't take care of us, so I got to do it on my own. It's fascinating, man. I, I remember reading Patrick Carnes. He's one of the leading voices on addiction. And he's talking about why do people go to things they know is destructive for them. You know what he said? He says the root of addiction is feeling unloved and unlovable. That addiction is an intimacy disorder. If I don't think anybody loves me, if I don't think anybody cares, if I'm not enough, if I don't measure up, if I feel like I can't measure up, get enough success, enough approval, like Jalen was talking about, in order to be somebody, to be approved, to be accepted, if I can't get there, then I'll just sink down into something to make me feel good. And so I'll chase, chase, chase and violate a lot of people and things to get approval, or I'll sink down and settle an addiction if that's what I need. And yet the root of all of it is feeling unlovable and unloved. And that's why James says, oh, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from your Father and lights. You want good things, and he wants them for you. You want perfect things, and he wants them for you. And your God is good. He's not going to promise you something and not deliver. He's not going to offer you life and then hold it back from you. There's no shadow or variation with him. He delights to give to you. Your father cares about you. Even if your earthly one never did, your heavenly one does. And when you understand the love of God, it makes this look a lot less alluring. And so what do we do? We don't try to fight the deception. And that's what so many people do. I got to knuckle down my discipline. Stop thinking about that. Stop going there. Stop texting him. Stop looking at that. Go to bed earlier. And some of that stuff's good, but what do we do? We hold back for a while, then get into the cycle, beat ourselves up, and we go through that cycle again. What does James say? He says, don't get in that stream and keep trying to paddle up. Switch streams. You're in this desire stream of taking legitimate desires to an illegitimate place. He says, you know, you need to switch Stream, stop looking to broken things to satisfy you. You need to go to your father who's a superior pleasure because he gives good gifts and perfect gifts when you ride with him. You need to switch streams. The uh, Puritans used to say it this way. How do you dislodge a beautiful thing from the human heart? They said you replace it with a more beautiful thing. We've talked about this. How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? 
Anybody remember Rosalind? Okay, front row. Yeah, thank you, ladies. Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare. What's happening at the beginning? Romeo is pining away about Rosalind. You remember that? Rosalind, oh, Rosalind, I love Rosalind so much. And then finally his buddy Benvolio is annoyed and he was like, hey man, I'm taking you to a party tonight and there's like a hundred girls there hotter than Rosalind. It's like the rough translation, like the message version, but read it, it's there. <laughs> what happens? Romeo says, the all-seeing sun has ne'er met her match since first the world began. There is no one hotter than Rosalind. But then he goes to the party and he sees Juliet. And that night, he sneaks into her yard and he says, But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, which is already sick and pale with grief, that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Rosalind who? <laughs> and for many of us, there are appropriate boundaries to put in your life, and there's other texts that speak to that. But for many of us, we need to switch streams and say, I've been looking for a heart-level satisfaction in broken places, and I need to get into a different stream. I need to replace a Rosalind for a Juliet. I need to dislodge this beautiful thing by replacing it with a more beautiful thing. I need to fix my eyes on my father of lights, who every good gift, and he repeats the word gift, every good gift and every perfect gift, why? He's trying to drill it into you, comes down from your father in whom there's no shadow or variation due to change. He is like the sun shining in the sky, except he never disappears over the horizon and he's never covered by a cloud. He is there for you. He is consistent with you and he loves you. In exhibit A of his love for you, he tells you of his own will, that is his thelema, his desire, because he wanted to. He brought you forth by the word of truth. He uses pregnancy imagery again. Everybody's having babies in James chapter one. Desire's having a baby. Sin's having a baby. God's having a baby. It says God of his own will because he wanted to, not because he had to, not because of his obligations as a deity, but because he wanted to. He brought you forth by the word of truth that you would be among the first fruits of his creatures. How do you know God loves you? Look back. Look forward, see what he's done. It's interesting, Philip Zimbardo is a psychologist who did the Stanford experiment. You know, where he used college kids to imprison other college kids. It's kind of weird, don't have time to go into it. But anyway, he gave a talk about resisting temptation one time. And he said the key to it is a past positive view and a future positive view. That I see good in my past, even though there may be a lot of wreckage in it, and I see good in my future, even though there may be challenges ahead. He's basically summarizing James. Except James looks up and says, look at what your God did. Of his own will, he brought you forth by the word of truth. Think about the day he brought you to life through his word. For some of you, you were five years old. You were a sweet little girl. And someone took you by the hand at Sunday school and told you Jesus loves you. And you said, this I know. And you didn't know anything about epistemology or metaphysics, and he didn't care. He knew you loved him because he loved you first, and he brought you from death to life, and out of his own desire, he made you his child, and he loves you. Others of you, it was this last year. 
or last month. And you didn't do it as a kid. You walked down many winding, broken roads. And you ended up in some dark and sad places. And while you were a long way off, he lifted your gaze. And you said, at my father's house, there is food for many. And I am here eating among the pigs. And while you were a long way off, you looked up. And your father was running for you. And he embraced you. And he pulled you out of that mire. And he set you on a rock and he put a new song in your mouth, a hymn of praise to your God that he delighted to save you as big a mess as you are. He delighted to save you because he wanted to, not because you deserved it, but because he delighted to do it. That's who your God is of his own will. He brought you forth because he loves you. When you understand that, I have the pleasure of God spoken over my life. That will give you what you need to resist the pressure of this world. Our global pastor, Louis, was talking to a group of us pastors the other day. It was amazing. He was talking about the ministry of Jesus, that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, began it, he stepped down into the water to be baptized. And what happened? The spirit descended on him as a dove, and then a voice spoke from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Louis pointed out, did you notice this is the beginning of his ministry? So why is God pleased? Jesus hadn't done anything. Hadn't healed anybody. Blind guys are still blind. He hadn't forgiven anybody. He hadn't even walked on any water yet. So what is God pleased with? He's pleased with his kid because he's my kid. And I get that. I got it when we had our kids. I mean, I remember when our little sparrow was born. So many complications, so many questions of whether she was going to come into the world. But I remember when that beautiful little girl arrived with that crazy full head of hair. I just loved her right away. And she hadn't done a thing. Actually, she had been kind of a hassle already <laughs> from the jump. And she certainly wasn't contributing or pulling her weight in any way. But I delighted in her. Why? Because she's mine. Because she's mine. And God looks at Jesus and says, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then what happens next? Then he is led out into that desert and the devil tries to tempt him. And how does he start it? If you really are the son of God, he never starts with the activity. He assaults the identity. Do you think God really cares about you? If God really cared about you, why are you out here starving to death? If God really cared about you, how come he hasn't exalted you yet? How come you're out here in the desert? If God really cares about you, how come you don't have power? How come you're out here in obscurity? And the devil keeps trying to get at him, but it doesn't work. Why? Jesus is fighting him off with Deuteronomy quotes left and right. Why? Because he knows I have the pleasure of my dad, and so the allure of sin just isn't getting to me. You fight with the superior firepower of knowing your God loves you. He loves you. He delights in you. And the more you rest in that, before you've done a thing, he loves me. Then you know you struggle, you know you're a mess, but you don't lose hope. And rather than run from him until you've earned his approval, you bask in his love. And in his love, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. That's how it works. That's what the early church figured out. That's why they loved their baptism to reenact Jesus's. They would walk up to that water, and right before they stepped in, they would turn around and say, I renounce you, Satan, and all your pump. And they would turn around, and they would walk into that water. 
And they pictured it like Jesus did. I'm standing here with the Son of God who loves me. The Spirit of God is dwelling with me, inside me forever. And my Father in heaven is speaking over me. That's my girl. That's my boy in whom I'm well pleased. And I'm united in community with the Trinity. And then you would step out and you weren't just united with the Trinity. You were united with the community. The whole church was standing on the other banks. And when you got out there, they would clothe you in a new, bright, clean robe. And then they would go nuts celebrating that you were lost and you were now found, that you were dead, but you were alive. You went from darkness into his marvelous light and they threw a party because that empathy dissolves that shame. That community gives you the power to walk out of all those lesser depravity. And you see that I'm meant to walk together. He said of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So let me encourage some of you. Jesus brought forth an us. When you come to him, we're born individually, but we're born into a family. And one of the greatest gifts he's given us is us. So come to community group. We didn't just come up to those because churches needed something to do. We know that one of God's greatest gifts for us is us. James will say later, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. That doesn't mean this week when you go to community group, you're going to have to confess all your sins. That's not how community group works. Okay, so confess all the darkness inside. Go, it's your turn, Bob. Like, it's not how it works. But you can come up, and rather than for some of us dealing with the loneliness of this city by shrinking into ourselves and becoming a self-immolated victim, we can step into community and say, you know what? I'm going to put myself out there, and I'm going to make some friends. I'm going to love some people. I'm going to serve in the city with these people. I'm going to live out of integrity, who I say I want to be and what I want to be true of me when I die. I'm going to do that with these people. Show up at community group. And then at a community group, we have fight clubs. That's where you do get with two, three people that you choose, and you get with those people, and you do share everything. I have those men in my life that all the lights are on. They know everything about me, and they love me, but they are not impressed with me. And I love to talk with men like that on the phone. And I don't text them because it's not the same. Because then you can be vague. Struggling today. Yeah, man, struggle. Me too. When you're on the phone, they're like, no, with what? Why? With who? Where? And start to push on you and say, hey, that's a lie. I don't believe that. Those are bad decisions. Don't dwell on that. That way of thinking is going to lead you to some activity that's not life-giving to you. And then they'll say things like, and I love you. And God loves you. And you're forgiven in Jesus' name. If you don't have someone speaking those words over you, you need it. We're meant to journey together. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And then if you haven't yet, you need to put your faith in Jesus. That's the greatest exhibit of God's love. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. When the truth is spoken, the Son of God loved you, came for you, lived for you, died for you, rose for you, and you believe that, you are brought to death from death to life. And the more I focus on that, the relentless love of God for me, the easier it becomes to walk away from the fleeting promises of sin. So there's no promises to make to God tonight. There's just the reception of his promise to love you. There's no big things you have to say to him to get his approval. He's done all for you. We sang earlier about the reckless love of God. It's a controversial song because there's a way to define the word reckless, which means without thought to its implications or repercussions. And that's not true of God. 
God thought a lot about what he was doing when he sent Jesus into the darkness. So if you saying his reckless love means he thought nothing about the implications, that's bad theology. You've been singing as a heretic and you need to repent. But if you think of reckless, like there is nothing he wouldn't wreck to get to you, that out of his own desire, he brought you forth. He knew I'm going to get my kid and I will go through anything to get to you, to bring you home. If you think of him like Liam Neeson in Taken, then you sing that song because it's true. There is no shadow Liam wouldn't light up to save his stolen daughter, right? With explosions, lots of fire, and guns. There is no chain he wouldn't break through just with a stolen car, break through those gates to get to his kid, to bring her home. That was the movie Taken. My father will break through anything to come get me because he loves me. And that's what your God's like. His reckless love. There's no shadow he won't light up. There's no mountain he won't climb up. He's coming after you. And when you know you're loved by that, when you embrace that kind of love, I am a beloved child. It becomes easier to let his voice amplify and let that voice of sweet escape diminish. And as you walk with us in him, you begin to see I'm living out of integrity and I love this. My deep desires are met in a deep well and deep calls to deep and I am more alive than ever. And I have watched people change who I didn't think was possible, but oh, behold the magnificent inexhaustible love of God. There is nobody too far. And when you come to know and dwell in and read about and soak in that love, you watch what God can do with a human life that will walk humbly with their loving dad. He will lead you places you do not think is possible and it isn't in your own power but it's enough for him. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.